Welcome to the Level Work Podcast. This is Jeff. And Andre. I could not get you to stop talking. What a woman speak. Do you see what I'm saying? How to break through with your spouse, your partner. <laughs> I've been thinking about this. How did you handle this? The man's kind of got it good. I feel like you're getting off on a little bit of soapbox. This is me rolling my eyes. This is really great. I really... Rolling. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Welcome to the Love Work Podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. And we have been overwhelmed by the amount of people that have been listening to this podcast. It's been so encouraging. We hope that the topics we've been talking about have been encouraging to you. Yes, this has been a very fun, fun project. It really has been. And um, the response we're getting has just been been really good. So I want to encourage you, though, if something that we're sharing really connects with you, please share it with others. Invite other people to this podcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet, press subscribe on whatever podcast thing you're doing right now. And today we have a great interview with hopefully new friends of ours, right? Oh, I know. I want them to be my best friends. Uh, So yeah, today we interviewed Catherine and Jay Wolf, and they wrote the book called Hope Heals. And they also have a camp and a whole business and project around um, the idea of Hope Heals. So you can find that at www.hopeheals.com. And you can also find them at Hope Heals on Instagram. Can you share a little bit about their story before we get into the interview? Because we didn't, in the interview, we, we got right to some of the content, but we maybe we said maybe you could just set up the story a little bit. Right. So yeah, in April 2008, Catherine had a massive brainstem stroke and she was only 26 years old. They had only been married a few years and she had basically it happened six months after having her first baby. So it was this massive stroke, an emergency situation, no warning, kind of a whole life or death scenario that basically led her to this ginormous surgery that basically the whole time was saying that she wouldn't live. Mm. She wouldn't walk again. She wouldn't speak again. Those were pretty much all her outcomes. There was even seven weeks where she doesn't have any memories in that, in that season. Yeah. Seven weeks. Yeah. So this is, uh, the book is about her whole journey, both her and Jay. And then Jay basically became her caregiver and has been her primary caregiver from the very beginning. And I, I'm telling you, this book is really amazing. I read it front to cover. And um, yeah, yeah. And this, this is really a story of, I mean, thinking about our vows, this is a story of in sickness and in health, right? Like in for the midst, better or for worse. And for better or for worse, right? <laughs> it's all the things. And it was a ch- complete change in their lives. Completely not what they expected after just being married, only a few years before that. And um, so... You know, we don't go into all the details of her time in the hospital, time, you know, through recovery in our interview. Kind of we kind of move beyond that and kind of get to their life lessons mm-hmm. and what they learned. So talk to us about what we should be there's listening so, for. There's so much wisdom in this in this conversation today. Uh, I would love for you to listen for three things that I had takeaways around. Number one, how to teach your kids about people with disabilities. Number two. Our picture of marriage and family will never be what we thought it would be. True that. And then how do you deal with that? Right. Because it's not going to be what you thought. And number three, we're going to learn about the largest minority group in the world. Yes. So, so here they are. Here's Catherine and Jay Wolf. 
So tell us the moment that you knew, each of you knew, that the two of you, like, that you were meant to be together. The, the moment where it was like, this is the one. The person. The person. Um, hmm. I'm not sure if there was one moment where that's the moment I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. Our very first date, Jay was filling in as the safe, harmless, never would I be attracted to him. We're totally just <laughs> thing. When my, when my boyfriend at the time was unavailable, my um, out-of-town high school boyfriend to come to my college sorority party. So he filled in, and we danced all night, and it was so fun. So I don't know if that's the moment I knew I was going to marry him or not, um, but it was the moment that my eyes were opened. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I was on a presidential scholarship to Sanford University in Birmingham, where we met, and I effectively chose to not go to a required scholarship weekend and thus jeopardizing my scholarship in order to go to this dance because, of course, that's the logical thing to do. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I think All for that, the girl. That was like the context for me. And so similarly, that was sort of a, a paradigm shift of like, wow, maybe there, there could be something in this relationship. And I've already basically almost gotten kicked out of school over it. So oh my goodness. <laughs> it was dramatic from the start. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so college, it. college, we met and fell in love, right? And got married right out of college. Yes, exactly. We were, we were 18 when we met and it was, yeah, we started as friends, which I think a lot of great relationships do. And not, mm -hmm. not that it's prerequisite, but I think if you're not really liking each other, there's, it's hard to love each other for a long time. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so we, we have always just gotten a kick out of each other and liked being around each other, but you know, we're wired super differently. We're both firstborns. We broke up a dozen times as we were sort of on these different paths of self discovery in college and things like that. And and yet by the end of it, we realized, yeah, I, I don't want to do life with anybody but you. So it's yeah. maybe going to yeah. be, it's going to be tricky to figure out how our passions align and yeah, let's, let's do it. And we did decide that, that we wanted to go to LA, um, kind of as an adventure more than anything. There were, there were certain specifics that took us there. Catherine had gotten an agent after having done some modeling in, in like the Southeast, she got an agent in LA and I decided I wanted to go to law school basically because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And I got into Pepperdine Law School, but I didn't find out until we were driving across the country to move to California. Oh, wow. So my acceptance letter, my mom was like, oh, thank goodness I got uh, your <laughs> like You got in. Got reason to move now. So that was a, yeah, that was kind of, that, but that's, that's a great adventure right there. Like we're going to just lean into the gut and where we feel like we're being led and, mm kind of worry about the details later. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Now, we always talk about marriage and that when we get married, we always, I think everybody has this ideal picture of kind of what your marriage is going to look like, one day what your family is going to look like, and how that always, always changes. Obviously, your guys' 
experience was a hundred percent different than what you ever imagined would happen. So talk to us a little bit about that just experience of changing expectations of that journey that you guys had to go through with that. Yeah. Um, pretty much everything was turned upside down in the expectation realms after the stroke. Um, I am both highly independent naturally, um, so I don't like being taken care of in some ways. Um, but post-stroke, um, I'm severely disabled, so I need ultimate help to do anything in life. And so Jay is my full-time caretaker, which is very unique. And obviously not the expectation probably of how I thought my life would look and probably same is true for the expectation you had of being a husband wasn't being a caretaker. Yeah, I, I think most of us, maybe all of us in our marriages and relationships represent sort of this experience that we've had, which is in fact that when you marry somebody, you think you know who they are and what will be for their future and that sort of trajectory. And with Catherine, when we married, she had this birth defect basically in her brain that she didn't know she had that would, in a couple of years after we married, create this catastrophic near-fatal stroke and lead to all of these disabilities and things. But in so many ways, when we marry, we all marry, you know, the things that we never could have imagined hmm. that are there at the moment of that commitment and that covenant. But the question is, will we continue to evolve in that commitment, even though it's not what we signed up for? And, you know, I've heard, I think every marriage has at least three iterations, I guess you could say. Right. Um, and, you know, you have kids or you have a big shift as you retire or, you know, fill in the blank. There, there are these catalysts that really create such massive change throughout us as individuals that it creates almost a new marriage um, and that happens with any marriage, uh, yet you add, you know, huge losses or medical issues or changes physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever. And of course that creates, you know, even a, a larger chasm between what was and what is or will be. And again, the question for me became is sort of, I woke up quite literally to what felt like a new person. In, in the bed, like, will, will I be willing to learn to love a new person? And uh, mm. it's not just one-sided, you know, it feels very like, oh, of course, you know, she had the stroke and whatever. I, I became a new person too. Mm. As I experienced that loss and that tragedy at such a young age, you know, our brains were still kind of forming when all this happened, you know? And right. um, so it changed me forever in good and bad ways. And I think Catherine, you know, also could roll over and say, like, am I willing to to learn to love this new hmm. person? You know, you know, because we're always evolving. We're constantly changing into new people. And yet within the confines of that relationship, there should be safety to say, even though you're going to change, like you're still loved and we can still have this marriage together. But that requires a lot of trust on both sides and a sort of an open handedness. It's an ever never ending process for sure. Yeah. I'm curious. How did you, how did the two of you process through that? I mean, there must've been a season. I mean, I'm sure. And, and this might be a continuous challenge, right? Like this continuous, like, okay, there's a situation that you guys have, but every marriage has 
like like you were saying, like there's something hidden within everyone's lives that in marriage starts to reveal itself. So if you were talking to someone else, it's in a moment that they're trying to, you know, debate whether they stay want to stay committed to that, knowing the the worst sides of people or the hidden things that didn't know they didn't know existed or whatever. How would you advise them in the midst of that? Like, what? How did you guys process all this together? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been a decade, so I think yeah, a, it, you know, it takes time. I think. I've heard research too. People in unhappy marriages right. actually, and I'm not talking about you know major yeah. abuse or major, major um, issues, yeah. but more just unhappy and discontent in marriage. If they stick it out, often seasons change, and they're quite content in marriage. I mean, it, it, that's just kind of the arc, sort of the undulation. I think of human contentment sort of lines up with you know if you can stay and if you can be present even in the hard stuff instead of just sort of trying to extricate yourself from it and think that the problems underlying are going to change by just finding a new person with a different personality or a different set of issues or whatever it's not going to change like the, you know the issues have to be worked through and thought through and more than that just i think a bigger ideological shift in the hard stuff there could be good stuff is a message that is really at the heart, I think, of what our lives and our marriage and our and our ministry and our work embody is that it can be hard and it is really hard, but it can still be really good. Mm-hmm. And those are not mutually exclusive. And I think that applies in marriage maybe as much as any kind of relationship. Well, I was going to say sort of back to the question about expectations so much of all of our expectations is like based on the belief that hard and good can never be connected to each other. Mm. That something's either good or hard. They're always mutually exclusive and can never coexist. And when we can kind of shift our paradigm to see, to see our world, our story, both hard and good, I think we can find a lot more contentment in our marriages, in our lives, of things not always being easy, and that doesn't mean they're bad. Right. And and that pain and that struggle can be a teacher. It can be a clarifying agent. Again, that doesn't mean it's not awful in the midst sometimes. And yet on the other side of it, to look back and say, wow, that really, I'll never view my life the same again. And I'm really grateful for that. We, we talk to a lot of folks, even just through the digital age who reach out to us all uh, from all over the world who have suffered at a young age and the strange like gift that that is because, you know, you look at these folks, uh, I, I keep quoting all this research so I can't like cite off the top of my head, but you know, <laughs> but hospice nurse nurses, like asking people what they most regret in their lives, you know, and strangely, the things that they regret, you know, often not leaning into a passion or like reconciling a loved one or whatever, those are often uh, the opposite of folks who have gone through trauma at a young age and have found resilience on the other side of it, post-traumatic growth. Because even for us, it's like, I life's too short. I'm not going to like let this disagreement forever break apart this relationship. I'm not going to like do this job that I hate just because I feel like I have to, you know, there's, it's kind of interesting to see how that struggle really can, you know, in the right confines, in the right context, create 
clarity trajectory of growth and clarity yeah and, and great beauty not in spite of the struggle but because of it and the other point i think in terms of i don't know just thinking through with people who are going through similar hardships in their marriage or relationships is the vital part of community i mean you know we have two kids and so the four of us are kind of our own unit now and you know so often any margin that we're not going to be spent like on guys' night, usually it's going to be spent like at home with the family, and that's beautiful. But there's a vital nature to a community outside of your family that is doing life with you, that knows what's going on, that that you can vulnerably say like we're really struggling right now, you know. And I think for a long time there were so many people just cheering us on from our families who were super supportive to our church community to just even our digital community, people we didn't know in person who in a way were, were bolstering us so strongly that uh, though we might have wanted to leave or quit, like this community was like, we're not going to, we're not going to let you mm-hmm. like you mm-hmm. be able to hope for yourself, but we're going to hope for you until you can't hope for yourself again. And, and then we get to be that for each other. So it's this very like cyclical, powerful experience of healing. I think that, um, that's how it's supposed to be. You know, we're not supposed to be isolated, even in our own marriages, as hard as that is to be vulnerable. Um, so, yeah, communities play a huge role in helping us keep going. Wow. Well, let's talk about that. The village, I mean, we, we were talking about this earlier, that we knew for you guys, like the village mentality, having community in the midst of really hard situation was like essential to you guys. So talk about how that played out for you and even today, like how like, we could implement that yeah. in our own lives. Cause we, we've talked with a lot of people that are struggling in the midst of marriage relationships, hard times. And we have noticed that in the midst of the hard times, they end up, most people separate themselves from the community and they'll say this thing like, well, I got to work out my stuff before I come back to this group. They got, they got to fix something and then they come back, they separate. And then, but in the midst of that, it seems like that's the time that community is needed most. Right, right. So perhaps the the best work of any community, any group, is that deep, vulnerable, transparent place that we all want to get to. But the reality is that before you can hit that great, incredible milestone, like just showing up and being present and loving on each other and getting outside of yourself puts you at a place where you can love on people. They can love on you. Even if it's not ideal and perfect and like you thought it was going to be when you and your besties were hanging in a field at a kinfolk dinner. Like getting in, <laughs> getting in a room of other people for a coffee is not a bad place to start. It doesn't have to be perfect to just let your life get a little messy because of others. And I think we've really done ourselves a disservice in our individualistic mindsets to say we don't really need each other. When anything in a marriage, a family, any functioning group in in some ways needs the support of other people. No one is an island. And I think um, our story definitely points to the need for others to enter in. And the beautiful thing about other people are showing up for you. I mean, there's 10,000 incredible things about it. 
But one of them that I think is overlooked is the value that it adds to your story to say, you know what, I'm going through a lot, but they're going through something different. And I can't fully wrap my mind around their junk because I got mine, but I know their life is not just perfect and easy either. So community informs how we all feel about our stories. And it just... I think it allows us less opportunity to gaze at our own navels and instead just points us more outward. Yeah. So it's broadening, I think, for sure. And I think to your point earlier, there's a certain investment and a sacrifice that community requires. And we don't like to talk about community that way, but there is a sacrifice of yourself, the time spent on me time (laughs) to go out and to pour into somebody else's time to take uh, the opportunity to listen with generosity to their struggles when you've already got your own struggles. And the last thing you want to do is hear any more junk going on in the world than somebody else. The idea of compassion, I mean, when you really look at that word, even as it relates to community is so beautiful because it really is a picture of suffering, which is the word, you know, the root of passion is, is about suffering. And compassion is to suffer with. So the reality is in, in our most basic places, we're like, we already have enough that we're suffering through. Why in the world would we want to take on anybody else's suffering? But when within a community of vulnerability, we take on somebody else's story, mm-hmm. the, the sort of paradoxical thing happens where it lifts up everybody else's burden together. You know, And so there is again, a very counterintuitive sort of, why would I take that on? But when you do take it on, it lifts everybody up. And, you know, I think getting over that obstacle of shame too is, I feel like culturally we're shifting that way, which is really exciting. You know, we're not, in some ways we have these digital edited lives that uh, create these facades that are easy to feel like we're connected and feel like we're being vulnerable when really we're not at all. And yet I feel like culturally there is this desire to want to be known and to be loved still, even in all of our failings and our struggles and our past and our hurts. And um, I think what we've found um, is we've struggled through our own just sense of loss and what are we going to do now and how do we live into this life we never saw coming is to realize that all these very personal things are actually often the most universal things in the human experience. They feel so specific and they feel like nobody could ever relate. And thus I shouldn't burden anybody with it, or I don't want to be embarrassed to say that this is my life and my struggle. And the reality is, and it's so ironic that most everybody in some form or fashion is living in that same struggle. Yeah. And if you had just, you know, said, Oh, instead of, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. You know, if you just said, I'm not good, I'm not fine, and here's why, and then somebody might say, oh, like, me too, because <laughs> right. you know, the, right. the specifics might be a little different, but like, thank God that I'm not the only one struggling through this. And the reality is we're all struggling. Just if we could have the courage to be vulnerable with that, it changes how we feel about our own ability to approach that. And as Catherine said, too, that perspective, community is not just like there to step in and give you the rides or the meals or help take care of your kids when you can't. It's also to as you said, broaden your perspective that, you know what, this is a problem in my life and this is um, a loss and that's valid. It doesn't, you know, we are quick to tell people, you don't just have to have had some medical catastrophe for us to think like, wow, you've got pain and you've got struggle. Like it's all relative, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, perspective is really key 
because when I'm getting so focused that this is the worst thing that's ever happened to somebody in my life, it, it's sometimes helpful to look globally, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's sometimes helpful to look across your neighborhood and it's my God, like people in the world are, you know, on the precipice of despair. They're mm-hmm. struggling with life and death. Um, their children are dying, like whatever. Right. It's, you know, again, that's not, that's not to shame you to say, oh, your stuff isn't good enough to, for anybody to care about. But it's really to open our eyes and say we're all part of this global uh, storyline of struggle. But there's also this possibility of a through line of hope that is mm. that can overwhelm it. And we can lean into that together. Yeah. So to shift a little bit, I know you two have um, two kids. Is, how many kids do you have? Is two. It two. 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 Okay. And I guess... Your first child was kind of a part of all of this since you had the stroke when he was six months. And then your second was kind of after the stroke and after a lot of healing had come. So I guess kind of my question is, is how have you been able to, or how has your, especially I guess your firstborn, but both kind of learned to, you know, they have a parent who's disabled and how are they kind of navigating through the world in that way? And also like having an understanding maybe for other people in that same kind of context, how has that been for you all with your kids? Yeah. Um, it's been complicated all around. It's, um, you know, it's such a joy to have had James, uh, my older son, who's 10, be a part of this story since he was six months old. I mean, he's, you know, grown up um, with his mother being extremely disabled and, you know, just come to understand the disability community in a unique way. (laughs) For baby John, who's now three, I shouldn't say baby anymore, he has watched me really mother as a person with disabilities. And I wouldn't say with James, I was even yet at a place to really mother him much as a baby, physically at least. Um, I am more with John. And for both of them, we don't think it's a bad thing. It's complex and there are painful elements for sure. But they are getting to have their mom in the picture, first of all, which by all accounts, that shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. And they're getting to see things done maybe slower than they would have chosen. You know, I I can't exactly spread peanut butter on a sandwich or walk at all or drive or hardly change a diaper or whatever. I have major, major physical challenges And yet those are not like the end of the world. I'm there. I'm in the picture with them and getting to to do life with them, whether I'm completely physically able or not. But it's been hard for sure to, um, you know, not be able to run when John sprints towards the street or in the yard. And there are moments of complete panic for sure. And um, there are also moments of sweetness where John wants to hold my hand and help me walk and balance me. And he's three. So I think it's it's both. There's um, 
there's hardship, but there's also a lot of beauty in it. I like to um, to tell other parents with disabilities that the gifts that we are, in fact, able to give to our children that that could be seen as, you know, the long list of things they don't get. They don't get a mom who can drive the carpool and, you know, pass out the candy on Valentine's Day at school or whatever. <laughs> but they're getting a mom who's who's there, who, who gets to, you know, like be in their lives and be in the room when they have the best and worst moments of their life. And obviously mm. that's um, not connected to anything my body can or can't do. That's my heart. And you get that. And that's pretty powerful. Um, we, we talk a lot about the role of parenting as a person with disabilities. We have a, a camp for families with disabilities, and there are adults who have, have severe disabilities with able-bodied children and just that complicated dynamic. And I think our world would pretty broadly say that that there's an element of an unfit mother, unfit father who can't physically care for the children the way they should be cared for. Mm-hmm. And I just really got to argue with that thought that, you know, there's so much that a child can gain by not being deprived of the parent with disabilities. But in fact, because the parent with disabilities does equal a lot of hard things, a lot of problems, a lot of struggle, that that, in fact, creates the kind of depth and character and compassion that we would deeply want to teach our child with words. And instead of words, we get to show them with our lives. And then in our marriage, I think it's that way, that more than James and John learning how to be a wonderful husband or how to be in a marriage when things are hard. How about we show them that by our lives? And that's what we get to do. That's what Jay gets to do is show them what it means to care for um, your wife, what it means to show up when you aren't probably feeling it. And it's a powerful gift we get to give each other. I'm curious um, as a, as a dad, I, next time I get to go to target, which will probably be, you know, it happens a lot, right? You know, and I get to interact with my kids and educate them about people in our community that have disabilities. What would you encourage me to say to our kids to educate them about potentially a people group that that is not in our family? It's part of your family, obviously. But like, I think that's a, a teaching opportunity. Next time we walk by a, a, a reserved parking space or we see someone in Target and I get to educate my children on something. What what advice would you give me as a dad and as a mom on on educating our kids? You know, there's a lot of fear of the other. I think it's just mm. hardwired us <laughs> as humans. And then more than that, there's a fear very innate of our own fragility as humans. So when we see somebody who literally embodies that reality that you can go from being totally typical 
to have a stroke and the next day your body and brain don't work how you always knew them to work. Like that's the reality of life and the uh, fragility of our bodies and world. Dude, that's a tough pill to swallow. And most people just easier to be like, that is not real. Like that's, an, an, you know, that's not happening. Right. They don't want to talk about it or they don't want to. Yeah. Most people want to protect their children from that reality. Mm-hmm. We almost consciously don't want our kids to know how fragile life is, yep. you know, it's, it's tragic. So I think, you know, each parent has to make their own um, sort of determination of what their kid can receive. And I'm not saying you just let it all hang out with, you know, whether it's your own marital struggle or your own personal issues or whatever. I don't, I don't know. That's probably not totally appropriate to let the kids just like be all in the middle of all of that. But I do think to show kids that they're, there is a brokenness in all of us that can still uh, give way to great beauty and that can still give way to strength. And, you know, that humanity is not something to be feared, but something to, to investigate more. And, um, so I think, you know, first off, it's like to, to talk about openly, like, what is it, you know, what does it look like to, um, live in a world not made for you? Would that be hard if you couldn't, you know, get, into target or get to, you know, up to your school because of this, you know, just to kind of have that conversation about putting yourself in a different perspective. I mean, honestly, what I never thought of until I was forced to be pushing the wheelchair of my wife, you know, you just don't think about it. There's a, there's a mental block. And so I think it's, it's really important for us to talk to our kids lovingly and, and also with a lot of grace. I mean, Hmm. often we're so scared or people will say, I'm just, I'm afraid I'm going to say something hurtful. So what I opt to is just not saying anything at all and perpetuating this sort of sense of invisibility that this largest minority in the world, people with disabilities, feel because the world isn't made for them or us, you know, and so you can't be out in it. When I say that, when I say it's like a billion people have disabilities, which the definition is so huge, that's why there's no really collective movement for this minority group is because it's, it's, it's people who can't uh, walk. It's people who can't talk. It's people who can't who hear, blind. who can't see. Right. It's it just, the swath is so broad. It's but spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. The combined numbers are the largest minority group. And, you know, yet there's not a collective movement for this minority population, but more than that, it's just hard to get out in the world. Mm. So a lot of people are like, I can't believe it's 20%, not, not just globally, but in the U S it's 20%. Too. And in cer- certain parts of the South, it's even higher. And this is just like U.S. Census, uh, right. World Health Organization kind of stats. It's because folks don't get out in the world. You know, they're at home a lot of times. They're sort of isolated in their own pain and the, their own struggle. And um, again, that speaks to the community needing to start seeing the world a little differently, seeing opportunities and seeing, I don't know, the vantage point outside of our own first person story. And so with kids too, I think just to, to take the opportunities that present themselves in front of you, like, yeah, in the target parking lot to start to re-narrate a story of what, what, what do you think that would feel like if, mm. you know, if your body works differently. And so, yeah, I think that's the starting point. And just to say, it's okay to ask a question. It's okay. You know, does it suck when a kid comes up and is like, what's wrong with your face? Like that's, you know, that hurts like in a certain, certain oh, deep spot, but, happens in a, all the time. but in a way, like hmm. how beautiful for a kid, not just to like be scurried along and like, Oh, I don't even want to look at you right. as a human because I know something bad happened and I don't, I can't even begin to enter. 
into that. I've learned to really love it when a troll run up to me and look at me and say, what happened? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so weird. I have never once had an adult run up to me and say, what happened? When I'm in a wheelchair, my face is paralyzed on one side, clearly something happened, and yet only children would feel free enough to say that. And I love it because I want my kids to be that way. I want them to have a deep curiosity and empathy and really look people in the eye. You know, I'm reading um, Cheryl Sandberg's book right now, Plan B, Option B, something. And in it, she talks about the pain of the, the people for whom the elephant in the room is, I forget how she says it, like the non-question-asking friends right. who never acknowledge the elephant and it's so painful to mm-hmm. never acknowledge because it really makes you feel unseen mm-hmm. and it's so beautiful because children haven't learned that yet they'll just no run filter right there's no filter and it's just so mm. raw and real and you know we used to live in los angeles and there was various people who are homeless all around us and when James or John are in the car with us and we, we would see a pocket of homelessness or there, you know, there were different people groups and situations that you'd see very close suffering. And it would be a wonderful opportunity to say, James, how do you think they feel right now? Like, it's okay to look and how do you think they feel? Like, let's unpack that. Let's talk about that. And I never learned to do that. I, I think I always learned by our world to look away. We've just got to look away. And I think it's such a beautiful thing to teach our children to know, no, look close, take it in. I um, I have to tell a story because this, you know, sometimes you, you talk about these things and then you really hope that they actually will <laughs> manifest when like the rubber beats the road, you know, and, right. and yet with your kids, I feel super shamed as a parent as that cycle. But we, James and I were, who's our 10 year old, we're walking around a downtown kind of a scenario. And a man came up and just said, Hey, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten. And I said, Oh no, what's your name? And you know, let's get to know you and, and we'd love to help you get some food or whatever. And so uh, I gave him some money and he said, I'm going to go to McDonald's. And then James says, excuse me, sir, can I make a recommendation? And um, I was like, Oh gosh, you know, he's going to tell him what's he going to say. Right. You know, like just some, I I don't even know what he's going to say. And he said, sir, um, I recommend you get the happy meal. It's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best. I, rec- I love that recommendation too. <laughs> you know, like you're not just, I think when kids get, um, again, that um, opportunity just to see people and not try to fix them, it changes how they will be as adults. And again, we're not, I was just so encouraged that maybe some of this is, is sticking. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So Catherine, I love, there's this one part in your book. You said our culture tells us to succeed be beautiful, avoid pain, and be happy. What right. if everything important in our lives is actually the opposite? And then you yeah. kind of talked about about kind of how healing has always hurts and pain has mm-hmm. been your instructor. And can you speak on that a little bit more? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, both a near-death experience and then subsequently becoming extremely disabled meant I kind of had to wake up to how I viewed the world and how I made sense of how I viewed the world and how I made sense of the world. And I think I realized that I just learned a lot of things wrong that I really understood even as the good soldier in some ways, doing the right thing, there was an element of, um, I don't know, trying to, trying to fit into a lot of boxes and having to do things a certain way. And I guess I've, I've learned how wrong that was, that things like success are not one note. And like we were talking about earlier, I have really had to re-understand, relearn, create new neural pathways that tell my brain that suffering is not the worst thing in the world. It is hard and painful, but that does not mean that it's not also at the same time very good and beautiful that I have always wanted to make those things opposites and never see them as coexisting. And I think the real joy in life can only be found when we do that, when we make peace with the bittersweet and really are even aware of the beauty in the breakdown of anything. Because really, everything's breaking down, if we're honest. Can we love that? Can we love and see the beauty in the breakdown? And I'm not sure I always could. I may be a a taste of it now more than I used to. Um, It's still hard to love whatever it is. An aging body is a great example. How to love the beauty in the breakdown of one's body on earth that's intense and no one ever taught me to do that in fact everything always taught me the opposite of that but the beauty of real big heinous problems is that things like your face don't matter as much anymore (laughs) when you can't walk and you can't eat then suddenly the fact your face is paralyzed is not the forefront of your life. And I think that was a deep gift to me years ago when I had the stroke. It's because I had to relearn to eat food and had to relearn to walk. And a hand did not work at all then. It works a little now, not much. But somehow these other really massive issues meant that the whole focus of my life was not on my face. And I think there was a freedom in that. Like, I I can't even worry about that so much. And so, I don't know, it's probably a really powerful informant for us all. The, like, the really big things make things that seem like a big deal but aren't not as big of a deal or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, Right. It's like, um, be like for a... Yeah, for an able-bodied person to say, hey, like, you can run and walk, so stop worrying about your cellulite. Yeah. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. You know, like, focusing on the things that you are able and things you can do without those little 
minor things that our culture focuses on so much. Exactly. Yeah. It seems, um, too, when you, when you have the strange gift of a life and death experience, it starts to open your eyes to the miracle of everything. And that sounds so sort of yeah. sky, but the reality of how a body works, how just our lives work in this world, it, it's, it's so ubiquitous that it's, not a miracle somehow to us in a way that changes everything. But it, I think when you see it almost end, that somehow restarts your ability yeah. to see that. And so then you start to see things like scars, not as this imperfection, but as this sign that you lived and as this sort yes. of beautiful reminder of new life that shouldn't be there. And, and that exudes such a different depth of, of beauty um, out of a different place than anything surfacey could. And so, I mean, I think Catherine is more beautiful than ever because of what I know of her character and what I know of her heart and what I know of her struggle and what I know of her resilience. And, uh, you know, so it's just, it's, it's been a, a really just a, a gift to get to see the world and everything in it and Catherine in it differently. And I, I wish everybody could, could have that. And I don't know exactly how to, how to give everybody that. And sometimes it feels like the only portal is through a redefining and sort of a going upside down and a yes. reading what we know. And um, again, so often that comes through pain and it comes through just having your world sort of shaken up in a way that nobody wants. But if you view it as that opportunity to, to start to see the miracle differently, then we don't have to be so afraid of it. And again, that's been, I don't know, that's been our journey. It's been a decade. It's not like we were like, yeah, let's, right. you know, this is such a gift. Like when she's got 20 machines out of her in the ICU and can't, don't, we don't have to right. wake up, you know? Um, yeah. But I love the idea. Our, our ministry is called Hope Heals. Our book, our camp is Hope Heals Camp. Um, but our friend uh, Mike Foster who's got this or called people of the second chance. I, I love how I he, love Mike. Yeah. He's so good. He's just, I, we miss that he's on the West coast and we're not, but he's, I know. but I hope we'll get, you know, maybe in Atlanta, maybe, maybe yeah. we'll buy wood. We'll, we'll all, we'll all get him to Atlanta someday. Um, <laughs> but he, the way he described hope was so transformative for us. Uh, hope not being the opposite of, of hurt as we so often think, Oh, hope is just the good. And, you know, anything that's not good can't be hopeful, but rather hype and hurt being on these opposite ends of the spectrum mm. um, and hope being in the middle. So, again, like Catherine said, leaning into that bittersweet, like hope is, hope is an awareness of all the struggle. And it's then leaning into the goodness that can be found there. You know, the, the opposite of hurt is often us pretending nothing's wrong, sweeping it under the rug, kind of putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. And that's not hope. <laughs> that's really not. I mean, hope is, again, this sort of open-eyed taking in the reality of things yeah. and yet believing that there is something more still despite the struggle. And so, yeah, that, that's been so, I think, informative as we look at our lives and our passion and our marriage and our family and um knowing they're not going to be perfect and that doesn't mean they're not good. And that doesn't mean there's not hope right. for them. Well, we have one more question for you, which I, it's really interesting to think about this question in the context of your story. The final question. The final question we ask everyone, because it, it actually has defined what you're doing today, honestly. The, the question we always ask people is, is it possible 
to change the world, for both of you to be involved in changing the world, staying in love, and raising a healthy family? And I'd love to get both of your takes on this question. Yeah, I totally think it's possible. I think when there's these combined passions with two different people trying to become one, trying to come towards one goal, I, I've just seen in our own life that there is something bigger than happen than could happen um, as individuals. And that's, again, I think it's tied to the struggle. It's tied to the putting aside our own needs in some cases for the other and not just for the other in the relationship, but for the other in the world and getting in the practice of that sort of condescension of self, you know, that idea of going low to get high. I mean, that's just, that's just, again, antithetical to how our bodies would even say we should approach the world. You know, we've got to struggle to survive, but to say, no, there is a way to go up together. And it looks like, you know, an open handedness. And yet I think what we've learned too, is like you, you, we can't control the outcomes. So we shouldn't have such anxiety over trying to do that because it's not possible. And yet, even in the open handedness, we need to come to wherever we're at with our whole heart. So it's that tension that we live in with our work and our marriage and our family that we're going to hold it very open handed because it's not up to us to fix it. It's not up to us to make it what it will ultimately be. And yet, no matter where we are, even if it's in a place in a, in a part of our story we never would have written for ourselves, we owe it to all that has come before us and will come ahead of us to show up to the, the present with our whole hearts, with everything we have. Even if we don't yeah. know what will be next, even if we're scared, um, even if it's not what we signed up for, it is what we've been given. And it's up to us to show up. And we've seen in that tension just things that we never could have imagined for our life and our marriage and growth and resilience and joy and happiness and hope and pain too. And you know, all the things again, but mixed yeah. together that fuels us to keep showing up to an yeah. unexpected life. So How would it, you answer that Catherine? Is it possible? Yeah. Oh yes. A hundred percent. It is. <laughs> Look at that spirit That's right there. Like possible. It's quite attainable. People would just mm. chill out mm. and recognize mm. that. Why would you want to miss the party of the, your life? You know, why would you, <laughs> why would you want to go a different way? Yeah, it's possible. Mm. Does that mean it's easy? No, but <laughs> That's when it's easy, the only way things get done. It's usually the opposite. Things are hard. They're not one note. And it's called life. And I don't think the measure of is it possible should be if it feels good all the time. Oh, they get to be like, maybe it doesn't feel good all the time. Maybe that that's how you know when it is possible. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I um yeah, I'm definitely convinced. Not only is it possible, it's very attainable mm -hmm. and um, very worth it. I mean, we're 10 years into a life we never could have imagined um, when we got married 14 years ago, 14 and a half. And um, I don't think we would trade it. I don't think we would trade our lives. And... Mm -hmm. That's pretty powerful considering that's a lot of really hard stuff. And yet it's a great life. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. 
I guess that's my answer. That's a good note. <laughs> you guys are answer. amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your wisdom. And I have a whole page of notes here from uh, things we'll be talking about. And now that you're Atlanta, I'm like, can we be best friends? <laughs> We've got to get together. We just have followed you guys from afar and loved. Again, I think it's not only your work, but that it's you. You're doing it together as a couple. Mm -hmm. And we've been so drawn to that and encouraged by it. So thank you for inadvertently just spurring us on. Yeah, absolutely. By your work. And we love, we're excited to get to know more and to get to be a part of what y'all are doing in the city. I love it. Thank you all. Seriously, thank you for your time. I know it takes a lot to carve out time. So thank you. It's our pleasure. Yeah, we we love it. Thank y'all. And now it's time for the breakdown. Oh my goodness. I cried my eyes out in that interview. Were you really crying? I was actually wondering. I have a cold, so I don't know if you all can tell my voice is a little deeper. And I was had a lot of Kleenex things going on. I I wasn't sure. See the tissues around me. I thought you were doing the sick thing, but then at the other time I thought, I think she's crying right now. Crying. Like I she got me. Catherine, like I said, she's gonna be my best friend. She just doesn't know it yet. So what's your first takeaway from this? Well, so she had a quote in her book that said, if hope is rooted in an outcome, then your expectations will crush you. And I just felt that that was kind of a lot about what we talked about expectations, that when you start out in marriage, you have just this image, this idea, these expectations of how you think things are going to go. And they literally never go that way. And maybe your and I's expectations have not been so drastic in life or death as Catherine and Jay's have been, but everybody deals with this, of the expectations like never being met. And so I just really love that idea of like, if you're only thinking about this one outcome or how it should be, then you're always, always going to be disappointed. And mm. And out of that, you're really never going to find true contentment in your marriage or in your partnership. Yeah. And I took a little thing away from them related to this, that like the sooner you get to the hardship and work through that, the more beauty you experience. They didn't say it quite like that, but they kind of referred to that over and over. Oh yeah. They talk about that a lot in the book that they're so glad all this happened so soon and so young. I mean, to have a stroke at 26 crazy you know Mm -hmm. so but they talk a lot about that that they actually feel blessed which is crazy to say blessed that this happens so young for them so yeah and and Catherine said that hard and good most people believe that hard and good can never be connected Mm. and she and then her response that was hard and good are not easy but it isn't bad right and that it all coexists Mm -hmm. Glennon well, she always talks about brutal. It's like the brutal part of life and the beautiful part of life can all be in one same word and all coexist at the same time. Mm. Uh, the second thing I uh, really took away from this was this idea when he explained the fear of the other, when I was asking him questions about how to educate your kids around disabilities, and I thought his framework in how he entered that conversation was was really amazing that everyone has a fear of the other 
someone different than them. But really, at the end of the day, Catherine kind of shared that when kids come up to her and say and ask the question, what happened? She mm-hmm. always loves that question from kids, but there, no adults ever asked what happened. Right. And that baked in that question is empathy and care and actual curiosity. And I thought that was interesting because it humanizes that whole, um, the fear of the unknown. I thought it was just a yeah. I don't know, cool conversation. Yeah. I mean, that question of really saying, what does it look like to live in a world that's not made for you? Mm. And instilling that in our kids and really talking through that with kids, you know, rather than kind of, it doesn't matter what it is. It can be a homeless person. It can be somebody in a wheelchair. It can be, but what would it look like through their lens? And we, we, as a team, uh, my team at Plywood, were wrestling through that just a couple months ago. We had uh, someone come speak at our event and she was in a wheelchair and that question, it became so vivid to me because the process that it took for her to get a rental van for us to get a rental van for her to, yes. to bring her from the airport to the venue, it was so much, it was so much work yeah. and it shouldn't be that difficult. It really shouldn't be. Yeah. This was such a great conversation with them. I think that there's so much more, I mean, out of that conversation that I could talk about and Mm. we don't want to make this longer than what it is, but I really think you should check out their book, Hope Heals. Um, They also have a camp, Hope Heals Camp, and uh, just look up their stuff. It's so encouraging. And just to hear the whole, if you read the book, it's the entire story, how she's learned to accept herself, where she's at now, even when it doesn't look like what she imagined it to be. And Jay, too. Thanks for another great episode of Love or Work. We will see you next time.